We're going to be talking about the priesthood today. Last week we looked through chapters 1 through 7 at the five different major sacrifices that God instituted here in the book of Leviticus, the, the burnt offering and the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the fellowship offering, peace offering. Uh, so all these offerings that we find here in the book of Leviticus, and we talked about what each one of those meant. But there had to be some people to uh, make these sacrifices, and that would be the priesthood. So today we're going to look in actually two sections of Leviticus. If you remember on the first uh, week we did Leviticus and looked at the outline, we said that there were some sections in Leviticus that kind of correspond with one another uh, because of the topics that they um, cover. We only covered one last week because the corresponding rituals is a different kind of ritual other than the sacrificial rituals. Uh, but the priesthood, we're actually going to look in two sections in Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, and then in Leviticus chapter 21 and 22. So to begin, we have our outline, and um, I noticed on the outline, I, did, I outlined chapters 8 through 10, but did not go back and do 21 and 22. Uh, so I will go and make those corrections when I post it uh, online to our webpage. But in chapters 8 through 10 is the ordination of the priest, specifically Aaron and his sons. As we um, look at the ordination of the priest, we find several, um, several rituals that go through there. We find the ritual of the robing and the anointing. There was specific garments that Aaron and his sons would wear. There were specific offerings that had to be made. Uh, and then there was the consecration. Uh, so that covers the ordination of the priest, uh, which is oversaw by Moses, who's been acting as the priest of the nation since they came out of the land of Egypt. Then in chapter 9 is the beginning of the priestly service. And this is where Aaron begins to take charge. So he's offering the sacrifices in chapter 9 that we will see. He's offering sacrifices for himself, and then he's offering sacrifices for the people of Israel. Uh, and then in chapter 10, we find a, um, you know, a sad story about Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. We're probably familiar with that, where they are suddenly and tragically killed at the altar of sacrifice. So we've gone from... Uh, you know, the last part of Exodus, or the, from the middle part of Exodus onward, with a lot of law, uh, and then the instructions for the tabernacle. There's a little bit of narrative mixed in there of what happens after the tabernacle is completed at the end of Exodus, when God's glory comes in. Then to begin Leviticus, we have the instructions for the sacrifice, and we saw in detail uh, in the first seven chapters. Uh, and then we go into a little bit of instruction and narrative here where they're performing the acts of ordination for the priest. Uh, so we come a little bit of narrative, and then with the uh, death of uh, Aaron's sons, we find here a little bit of narrative as well. Then we're going to go back into some law. So we have, it's not straight law, but it's law intermixed with this narrative story that we have been in since the beginning of Genesis, of tracing uh, what's going on through this family that God is ultimately going to bring redemption to the world through. So uh, just some words uh, introducing, uh, introducing the priestly roles of um, the priest and the Levites. 
So obviously, if you have a sacrificial system, you have to have someone to oversee that sacrificial system and to make sure it functions correctly. And that was through this ministry of the consecrated priesthood. This group of of men that would be set apart uh, to approach God on behalf of the people. That was the, in essence, if you could give a job description of the priesthood, it was to be It was to be a mediator between the holy God and the sinful people. The way that the sinful people could come and approach the holy God was to make sacrifices to atone for their sin. It was to do ritualistic cleansing that they may be seen as holy enough in the eyes of God. So the priests were the mediators. It was the the middleman between the holy God and the sinful nation of Israel. So here in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9, Aaron and his sons are officially ordained as priests. Prior to their ordination, Moses himself served as priest and led the nation in worship. Uh, Going back to Genesis, the patriarchs uh, were in this role as they uh, built altars, as they presented burnt offerings and drink offerings to the Lord. Then when we come into the middle part of the book of Exodus, as Moses is up on the mountain with God. We remember the scene very well. Uh, When he's up on the mountain receiving the law from God, the people are down below building a golden calf and talking Aaron into building this golden calf. And they begin to have a a feast around this golden calf. And God gets angry. If you remember the scene, God was angry. He was ready to kill everybody. Moses talks God off the ledge. Then Moses comes down, sees the people. He gets angry uh, and and he's very angry. And if you remember, because part of the judgment of that was Moses called the tribe of Levi and these men to go and execute literally judgment upon their own brothers in the nation. And when the tribe of Levi came to Moses' side during that, it was during that time, this awful time, that because of the Levites' willingness to execute judgment, uh, because Israel had already violated God's holiness, that God set the Levites aside as a special people uh, and to be his ministers. So Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi, and his descendants were to serve as priests on a permanent basis. So the priesthood of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the worship of the tabernacle would be from Aaron and his sons and their descendants and the tribe of Levi. Uh, In one sense, the nation was to be a kingdom of priests, but the family of Aaron maintained a level of purity and ceremonial cleanness above all of the other Israelites. So where the Israelites had the law and and things that they had to, requirements they had to meet, the the priesthood, the tribe of Levi and, and Aaron's sons had a higher standard. And then you went up a level to the high priest, which Aaron is the first high priest. And he had an even stricter level of holiness that he had to meet as well. Um, Aaron and his sons were the only ones who could enter into the holy place, sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices, eat the meat that was holy to the Lord. The high priest was the only one who could enter the most holy place on the day of atonement to sprinkle the blood on the ark of the covenant. So the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his descendants played a specific and, and, and important role here in the priesthood. As we talk about the high priest, the high priest was the ultimate mediator between God and the nation. And again, the, the high priest foreshadows Jesus Christ and his role as high priest to us. And we're going to get into 
to all of that um, in, in a few weeks as well when we close out Leviticus. Um, but he maintained a higher standard than anybody else the high priest did. The holiness of the high priest was especially important during the Day of Atonement. Uh, the high priest could not become ceremonially unclean. And we'll see what that means uh, before we leave here today. Not even at the death of a mother or father. He could not come in contact with the dead. Uh, the woman he had to marry would be uh, a virgin. So there were very, very strict rules for the high priest. Uh, the high priest has specific garments that he had to wear. Uh, listed here are some of the garments that the high priest wore. Uh, he wore uh, a linen apron-like garment called an ephod. Uh, on the ephod were blue, purple, and scarlet yawn and strands of gold. Uh, there were two onyx stones fastened on the shoulders of uh, the ephod, uh, each carrying the name six sons of Jacob on one, six sons of Jacob on the other onyx stone. Uh, on his breast would be a breast piece, a nine-inch square cloth uh, that had 12 precious stones, again symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, inside the, uh, the, bre the, the breast piece would be what is called the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim uh, are kind of mysterious. You know, we're not given a whole lot of information uh, about them, but basically, is the best we know, they were kind of like casting lots. You know, when they would inquire of the Lord, they would take out the Urim and the Thummim, and they would kind of cast them down, and there would be what God's will was. Uh, for the people, or for the nation, or for certain situations. So that would be kept in the breastplate. And then on his head was a turban with a plate of gold uh, engraved with the stones holy to the Lord. So the high priest was decked out from head to toe uh, with this special garment of the high priest that he wore. Then you had the other priest. So if Aaron was the high priest and his sons would be uh, the other priest, uh, the high priest bore the primary responsibility um, but he received valuable assistance from his sons. They too wore special tunics, sashes, and headbands to give them dignity and honor uh, as they carried out the important functions along with their fathers. Uh, the priest officiated at the tabernacle when the various sacrifices were presented. Uh, they were responsible for determining if individuals had been healed of various diseases uh, and if so, the priest uh, superintended the cl cleansing rituals there for the people who were uh, unclean. The priests were given the task of teaching the Israelites the decrees of the law so that the people would not violate the Lord's commands. And then when questions about the law came up in court, the priest exercised a judicial function and handed down decisions. So the priests did a lot more than just, you know, just the regular sacrifices on the daily. They had several other functions that they would perform as well, such as you know, determining the, the cleanness or uncleanness of people and uh, teaching the law and, and standing up uh, in the midst of court. Uh, so they played a prominent role really in the, the religious and the, the civil and the ceremonial and the moral responsibilities of the life of the Israelites as well. Then you have the other Levites that were not specifically descended from Aaron, but these were Levites that were just a part of the tribe of Levi. Uh, when the firstborn sons of the Israelites were spared during the tenth plague, God declared that all of the firstborn were His. But instead of segregating the firstborn of every tribe, God chose the whole tribe of Levi to serve as His special servants. 
In this role, the Levites were a gift to Aaron and his sons. They were to help do the work at the tent of meeting. Though the Levites could not serve as priests, they were able to assist the priest uh, in their work to carry out the tabernacle. Uh, Whenever the camp would be moved and packing up and carrying all the holy furniture and setting up and tearing down the tabernacle, because the tabernacle was uh, mobile. It was meant to be taken up and moved to the next place. The Levites were in charge of of all the furniture and gathering the tabernacle and setting up the tabernacle uh, as well. Uh, The Levites were not given any inheritance in the promised land. Uh, Most of the tribes were given a portion of land. The Levites were not given uh, their own inheritance in the promised land. Uh, And to supplement that, the Israelites were commanded to give their tithes to the Levites. uh, And then the Levites, in turn, were to give a tenth of those tithes to the priest as an offering unto the Lord. So you had these three levels that involved the priesthood, the high priest, uh, the other priests that worked in the tent of meeting, and then the Levites who were assistants to the priests. So this tribe of Levi, the whole priesthood was, was built upon them. You know, and, and sometimes we'll call it the Levitical priesthood as well. Um, of course, getting ahead of myself because I have to you know, mention that. You know, in the New Covenant, the Levitical priesthood has been superseded by another priesthood, and that's the priesthood of Christ. After the order, not of Levi, but after this mysterious figure of Melchizedek. Uh, Because Jesus is our high priest. But here's the problem. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So Jesus has no legal right to be priest or high priest under the Levitical priesthood. So the book of Hebrews tells us this. To solve that problem, God changed the priesthood. And he changed the priesthood from the Old Covenant Levitical priesthood to the New Covenant Melchizedek priesthood, where Christ is our high priest and we are his temple, we are his tabernacle, offering spiritual sacrifices. So when we talk Old Covenant and New Covenant, Leviticus plays an important role because we need to understand what's going on. You know, so a lot of the church's focus honestly, is still over in Israel and Levitical priesthood and all of this. And according to the book of Hebrews, if we believe the book of Hebrews, you know, there's a new priesthood that's been established. There's a new high priest. There's a new temple. There's been better sacrifices. There are better promises. There's a a better covenant with with better blood. Uh, And all of that is established by Jesus. So, you know, just Take that for what you will, because it's, you know, that's, that's an important part that you know, a lot of Christians don't realize is that through Christ, God changed the whole thing. He changed the whole thing uh, because Jesus is the ultimate high priest. But uh, anyway, I just I, I can't not say that. It's just, just too good. Okay, back to Leviticus. Um, Leviticus chapter 8. So that's a little bit about the priesthood, kind of who the priest were, what the priesthood was, was all about. Then once we get here in Leviticus chapter 8, it uh, deals with the ordination of the priest. Uh, so if you notice in verse number, uh, or chapter 8 in Leviticus, verse number 1, we have the Lord speaking to Moses, and here's what the Lord instructs Moses to do. In chapter 8 of Leviticus, he says, Take Aaron and his sons with him, take the garments, take the anointing oil, take the bull, the sin offering, the two rams, Take the basket of unleavened bread and assemble the whole congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this was 
a large ceremony that included all of Israel that was to witness the ordaining of Aaron and his sons as priests. So he tells them to gather all the elements. If you notice the elements here, Aaron and his sons, garments, anointing oil, a bull, two rams, unleavened bread, and all of this was a part of this uh, priestly ordination that we have here. And of course, there's um, all these specific instructions that we're supposed to do. Instead of reading them straight through, um, we're going to kind of look at them as, as a whole. Uh, much of the chapter here in uh, chapter 8 follows Exodus 29. In Exodus 29, oh, we, part of the giving of the law was instructions about the priesthood. So this follows closely with that. Why? Because they were supposed to follow the instruction of the law. Uh, there are a few minor, vari- minor variations here. Um, but in Exodus 29, God describes the ordination procedures to Moses. And in Leviticus 8, he executes the ordination procedures as God had commanded him. Uh, so the Levitical performance naturally divides into several sections. There are seven main things that happen here during the ordination service, and then we have the, the verses listed there of where they happen. First of all is the public presentation of the priest and the item. So all of this had to be done before the people as, the, as Aaron and his sons would be publicly presented to the people as their priest. Uh, there would be a priestly robing and anointing. They would put the robe and the clothes uh, on Aaron, and then they would anoint him. Uh, then they would make three offerings. They would make a purification offering. They would make a burnt offering. And then an offering for ordination, uh, which would be the other ram that would be offered for ordination. Uh, then there would be the consecration that takes place. And then there would be the um, conclusion uh, where they would put it all in the hands uh, of Aaron and the conclusion there. Verse 36, it concludes with, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. So the conclusion is, is they did what was commanded of them. So that's the ceremony as an overview with the presentation, the robing and anointing, uh, the purification offering, the burnt offering, the ordination offering, and then the consecration. Um, Moses presents three major offerings before the Lord in accordance with the instructions of Exodus 29. The purification offering, burnt offering, and ordination offering. Uh, Theologically, this order demonstrates first the need to deal with sin before coming to God. Uh, So the purification offering was first. So first the purification offering for being pure, then the burnt offering, then finally after those two offerings, an offering of ordination. As we look on our second page, when they presented the three offerings, here is an overview of the procedures of how they made these three sacrifices. And then um, if you'll notice on here, verses we trace the first offering, which is the purification offering from verses 14 all the way through 17. Uh, the second offering, the burnt offering from verses 18 um, all the way down to 21. And then the third offering is verse 22 down through 29. So where you see on number one presentation, where you see verse 14, that's the first offering. 18 would be the second offering, and 22 would be the third offering. Now some of these, like verse number or number five, the arrangement of the pieces, only pertain to the burnt offering. Uh, so that num- verse number 20 is part of the burnt offering. Uh, the wave offering in verse 29 would be tied to... 
the third offering would be there. So some of these, most of these have all three. Some of these just have one or two. But first of all, an offering the offerings would be the presentation of the offering. We remember that from last week with the burnt offering. They would, uh, they would bring the, the bull or the goat to the front of the tent of meeting and have it presented uh, before the priest. So first of all, there's the presentation of the three offerings. Then secondly, they would lay their hands on the offering. We saw that last week too, a symbolic uh, symbolism of transferring your sin onto the offering. Then there would be the slaughtering of the offering, the killing of the offerings. And then the manipulation of blood, what they would do with the blood. Uh, you know, For the first offering, I think Moses took the blood and he put it on the horns of the altar and around the sides and the bottom of the altar. So usually there would be a specific place where the blood would be applied uh, as well. Then we see number five for the uh, burnt offering is the arrangement of the pieces. Uh, what they did with the fat of each offering would be number six. Um, and then... Uh, the third offering would be presentation of bread and a wave offering where they would take it, put it in their hands, and they would wave the offering before the Lord. Both of those, number seven, have to do with the third offering. Uh, then they would do the burning of the offering on the altar for all three of them. There would be another wave offering, verse number, or number nine here in verse 29. That would be for the third offering. Uh, then the remaining uh, material would be burnt outside of the tabernacle. That was for the first offering. And then it's mentioned here that in number 11, that all three offerings were done by divine command. So it wraps it up as far as this, they did what the Lord had commanded. So this was the ceremony that took place here that the priest could be, that Aaron and his sons could be uh, ordained. Uh, the conclusion to the ceremony in verse 36 notes the perfect and complete obedience of Aaron and his sons. They did everything the Lord had said. They do not object or protest to the requirements. They carefully follow all of them. As a result, their initiation into the priesthood bodes well for the system and means by which Israel will continue to enjoy God's presence. As is true throughout Leviticus 1-8, through Moses remains the sole mediator between God and Israel here, but yet that will change as we go into chapter Nine. So Moses is mediating this ordination service. When we get to chapter 9, this is the beginning of the priestly services. So here in chapter 9, further sacrifices are offered, uh, but there are several differences from chapter 8. Number one, Moses is no longer officiating the offerings. Aaron, because he had just been ordained, God had accepted it, now Aaron is the high priest, and he begins his ministry, and Aaron begins to perform the sacrifices. Um, so the ordination was uh, accepted and worked in chapter 8. Um, on the eighth day, Aaron and his sons perform all the major sacrifices for themselves first and then for the community of Israel. This concludes with Aaron's blessing on the people twice. Thus the priests perform their main priestly task in this chapter. This serves to establish their priestly role in the eyes of the people. The divine miraculous acceptance of their sacrifice at the end of the chapter further confirms their special position. So this was all meant to be done publicly. It was all meant to convey a message to all of Israel that these are your priests. And they are standing and acting in the place of, of mediation between you and God. Uh, they're the ones to execute the law. They are the ones to accept your sacrifices 
and the people of Israel were to revere them as such. Um, just kind of the structure of this chapter, um, the instructions to everyone, verse 1, then there are instructions to Aaron, and then instructions to Israel again, verses 3 and 4. Um, everyone responds by bringing what Moses requires, verses 5 and 6. Uh, then there's the offerings that are made. And this is just a chapter telling you how Aaron offered these offerings as high priest. Uh, so there's a purification offering. Uh, then there's a burnt offering for himself. Uh, then there's another purification offering and a burnt offering. And then a fellowship offering for all of Israel. So you have the purification offering, the burnt offering for himself, purification, burnt offering, and fellowship offering for Israel. So if you like reading all the details about offerings, chapter 9 is a good chapter uh, for you. Uh, but if you notice the sequence here, uh, everyone, Aaron and Israel, pervades most of the chapter. It concludes with the blessing of the people by Aaron and Moses and the demonstration of the glory of God in his acceptance of the sacrifices. Um, and that looks like when you read verse 24 of Leviticus 9, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So that's a miraculous act that God performed when fire fell uh, before them and consumed the burnt offering. Uh, so that was the sign of God's approval of all of these sacrifices for the nation by this new high priest and his sons. Uh, tragically, we would see divine fire fall again in the next chapter. But this time, it's not a miraculous sign of acceptance. It's a miraculous sign of judgment. And a very tragic part of, um, of Leviticus and a very tragic part of the story as well, um, which involves Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were just ordained and God accepted them as priests. Um, so verse chapter 10, verse 1, let me just read the first few verses. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered what the ESV says is unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and didn't consume a burnt offering, but consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, God's saying, I'm not playing around. That, that, that's, this is what God is saying. I will be sanctified before the people. I will be holy. No one will disrespect that holiness and unsanctify me in the presence of the people. I will be glorified. And probably for the best, uh, verse number three ends with, and Aaron held his peace. Um, that's probably for the best. I don't think God was in the mood to play uh, right here in the moment. Um, and then Moses uh, calls the sons of uh, Uzael, the uncle of Aaron, uh, and carries Nadab and Abihu out um, of the camp. And then instructions are given. So, uh, you know, just a brief story. You know, we have one verse, you know, 
about God consuming them and they died before the Lord. Uh, but it obviously speaks volumes. And what do we make out of this account of Nadab and Abihu and the consequences uh, here? Number one, it shows us that the sin offering doesn't last very long in the book of Leviticus. Because uh, they had just made a sin offering for themselves to have their sins forgiven. And uh, now this act was obviously in direct rebellion against God, and they are judged for it. Um, but up to this point, Aaron and his sons, and it repeatedly said before that they had obeyed God, they had, they had done everything that the Lord commanded um, but for some reasons, Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, presented to the Lord incense that was unauthorized, that the Lord did not command them. So number one, this is in direct disobedience, um, which is rebellion to God's commands. Uh, they offered unauthorized incense contrary to God's command, and Aaron's sons were immediately struck dead. A uh, close parallel is Exodus 30, verse 9, which says, Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering. Do not pour drink offering on it. The other incense contrasts with the holy incense, whose recipe is found in Exodus chapter 30 and 38. That includes the commands, Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Um, the following verse contains the ominous warning, whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from the people. That's the ingredients of the incense must, be, must follow the command of God. So they did what they were not supposed to do. And God had already given them specific warnings about offering incense for themselves or offering incense that was not made in the way that God had commanded the incense to be made. And God used an example. He made an example uh, out of them from this to show that you don't mess with God's holiness here in the book of Exodus. There is a distinct line drawn between God's holy and God's holy things and God's holy way versus people. And it's specifically mentioned how God, you know, his ways are going to be the ways. Um, as with the incense, the same is true with the fire. It appears in 924, where it proceeded from the presence of the Lord. Uh, we saw where the fire came down at the end of chapter 9. Uh, the unauthorized fire comes from uh, some other source that's brought the unholy in touch with the holy things of the sacrifice. You don't mix the holy and the unholy. Uh, the warning that the offender of the incense would be cut off from the people should apply to the offender the purity of the fire. Both involve the contamination of the holy with that which is unholy. And that's really the whole point of all of this that we see here in Exodus, Leviticus, that we'll see in Numbers and Deuteronomy, leading on into when the people settle in the land. It's all a picture to Israel of you are not supposed to be mixed in your devotion with Yahweh and the other unholy nations around you. All of this is drawing a distinction and drawing the picture. So you are my special called out people. You are a peculiar people. You're a holy nation. You're set apart for me. 
Uh, and therefore, you are not to be influenced by the gods of the other nations. You're not to worship the other gods. You know, your worship is not supposed to look like the worship of Baal. Your altars are not supposed to be like the altars of Baal or the other gods that are around you. They were supposed to be a special people for Yahweh and Yahweh himself. So all of this is, is meaning to preach that to the people. These sacrifices, the law, the way they were supposed to do it, what the priest wore, it's all supposed to separate them as a holy people that serve a holy God. Um, and we see this over and over again of the mixing of, you know, the contamination of, of the holy with the, the unholy, uh, either by taking holy uh, incense and using it for common purposes or by taking common fire and mixing it with the holy fire of God. Anyway, so the ultimate question is, what, what was their motivation? What did they do? And we certainly just don't have all of these answers. Um, why they did, they did this, we don't know. Um, one reason which seems unlikely is their ignorance. You know, I don't think they could have pled ignorant. Oh, God, we didn't know. Obviously, they didn't know because Moses has been hammering this home since the middle of, of Exodus, of what they were supposed to do, and they were wholly dedicated to this. So obviously they didn't, you know, or couldn't plead ignorant. Sorry, God, I didn't know. Oops, that was a mistake, because they did know. Um, so we don't think it was ignorance. Um, another reason was, could it have just been a casual and relaxed attitude toward God while offering? Were they not taking it serious? Enough? Were they coming before God with, a, with an attitude that was not reverencing the holiness of God? You know, that's a possibility. Some suggested, uh, some theologians suggest they were incorporating non Israelite religious ceremonies into their priestly work. They were using incense that other nations might have used or fire which other nations might have used. Um, you know, we don't have evidence for this, it's just a guess that people make. Um, others have suggested that rather uh, than the sons having been just careless, that maybe they were drunk while they were attending to the altar. Uh, if you notice in chapter 10, verse number 8, there's a specific reference the Lord speaks to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, uh, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Uh, so some have connected that, even though it doesn't specifically say this is the reason. God certainly warns Aaron and his sons here not to basically be drunk when they go into the tent of meeting to perform their religious or their priestly duties, uh, lest they die. Uh, so some have concluded that maybe Nadab and Abihu were, were drunk and they decided to go and offer an offering to the Lord while they were drunk and that was obviously a dire consequence. I mean, it's very possible. Uh, that would certainly explain verse number 8. Uh, but again, we're not told exactly. But whatever the reason is, it's clear that those who approach God had to be pure in every way and had to follow what God said and had to be perfectly obedient in what they did, uh, or there would be dire consequences. You know, and then you can, I guess it's because these are specific instructions, but then you've got you know, Aaron was the one that made the golden calf, you know, and threw the party to this golden calf. And now he gets promoted to the high priest. You know, how come he wasn't struck dead? 
Uh, I've always I've often wondered that. How come Aaron wasn't struck dead at the foot of the mountain when he's crafting this? I mean, and that didn't just like, oops, I made a golden calf. He had to take all the gold from everybody. He had to melt it down. He had to form the calf and they threw a party. Um, he gets to stay high priest. You know, his sons, you know, make a mistake or, you know, have a, you know, drunken night out on the town or something, and then, bam, automatically they're, they're struck dead. So, you know, some of the things we don't understand why they happen, but obviously this was God making a point is the way I see it to the nation and to the other priests as well. Because just as the people were supposed to be holy, the priesthood was supposed to be extra holy uh, before the Lord. So, you know, that, that's how I kind of view this. And, you know, the priesthood, they, they weren't ordained priests when Aaron was at the foot of the mountain. Um, and they've been officially ordained now as priests, so that could have something to do with it as well. But it's definitely a sign to all of the people of Israel as well of the seriousness of what's happening here. Uh, then we see some of the fallout from that story at the end of chapter 10. Um, uh, after, let me just read verse number 10 of chapter 10, uh, because again, this just talks about what we've been talking about. You are to distinguish, speaking to the priest to Aaron, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. You're to teach the people. So there's this, again, differentiation between what's holy, what's not, what's common, what's clean, what's unclean. Um, so all of it comes down to God's holiness. That's what the whole book of Leviticus is about. It's about God's holiness among His people. All right, then to close out today, I want us to go over very quickly to Exodus 21 and 22. Chapter 21 and 22. Chapter 21 and 22, again, speaks toward the priesthood and basically gives qualifications for um, the priest and the sons of Aaron for their qualifications to be priests. Because just, just because they were a son of Aaron doesn't mean they were automatically qualified to be the priest. They had to keep certain restrictions in order to be qualified to be a priest. So chapters 21 and 22 speak to us about the qualifications of being a priest. Uh, and there are really two parts uh, to this, chapter 21 and then chapter 22. In chapter 21, uh, the considerations are for making himself unclean from the dead. So they were, and you know, we haven't talked about this yet. That'll be next week probably. But there was these categories of clean and unclean in Israel. And these really was, this really wasn't sin. It was just clean and unclean. You were ceremonially unclean. And if you were unclean, then you had to get clean. So let's say a family member dies and you touch a dead body something like that. Uh, you were unclean because you came in contact and touched you know, a dead thing. Or if you had a you know, discharge of bodily fluids in certain instances and you touched that, then you were unclean. That doesn't mean you were a sinner. It just means you were ceremonially unclean. And then you had to go through a process of becoming clean, whether it was waiting three days or waiting seven days or going through a certain washing. So you had to go from unclean to being ceremonially clean again. So for the priest, uh, they could not defile themselves or become unclean uh, for the dead, except in the cases of their nearest relatives. 
And I mentioned that's here, their mother or father, son, daughter, brother, or a virgin sister. You know, so someone closest to them died, uh, and them coming in contact with the dead closest relatives, they would not become unclean, but if it was anybody else, they would become unclean. So they were supposed to stay clean. Uh, in their marriage, um, they could not marry a prostitute. They could not marry a woman that had been defiled with another man. They could not marry a divorced woman, a woman who had been divorced. They had to remain pure in those areas as well. Uh, to the high priest, it speaks to even stricter requirements. Uh, he was to not supposed to, to come in contact or defile himself with the dead at all, even if it was a mother or a father. Not at all. Um, he was supposed to only marry a virgin of his own people, verse 13 and 15. Uh, so those are the, the, the priests are supposed to stay clean. Uh, the sons, in certain ways, the high priest in stricter ways. Uh, none of the priests could have any physical deformities. Uh, and it goes on to list physical deformities that the priest had uh, beginning in verse number 16 and 17 and down. Uh, they were to have no blemish. Uh, no one who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. Uh, that's if anyone was blind, disqualified, lame, disqualified, uh, mutilations on the face, disqualified. If one of your legs was longer than the other, one of your arms was longer than the other, uh, disqualified. If you had an injured foot or hand, you were disqualified. If you're a hunchback, you're disqualified. If you're a dwarf, you're disqualified. No defect in sight, no itching disease. Um, you had to be able to reproduce. Um, no blemishes at all for the priesthood. So part of that is taken up with clean and unclean. And then the second part of Leviticus 21 is taken up with those who have deformities. Um, and these are all general, general qualifications for all priests with um, restrictions on the high priest. Um, the qualifications continue for the priest going into chapter 22. Um, speaking of the holy things that were offered by the people, focusing on the eating of the food of the sacrifices. They anticipate the remainder of chapter 22. The instructions were there for diet and consumption of sacrifices. So there were some qualifications there. Uh, the concern for holiness before God becomes especially important to those of the priestly order who enter into the holy places and approach the holy God of Israel. Uh, the section contains uh, three parts when you get down to verse 17. Verse 17 deals with acceptable sacrifices. Um, general introduction, there are instructions regarding animals that God will accept as burnt offerings and as fellowship offerings. Another introduction in verse 26 begins a final section on slaughtering uh, mothers as animal mothers and their newborn among sacrificial animals. And a note on eating the sacrifice on the same day. Chapter 22 concludes as it begins with the commands to keep God's commands and thereby avoiding profaning His name. So it's how you offer sacrifices. All of this is doing it the way God wants it done. You know, that's what it comes down to with the priest, with offering sacrifices, with the priesthood. It's obeying God's commands. It's separating the holy from the unholy. If you're called to the priesthood, you know, this is your standard of separation from the people. You're not supposed to be like the common people. You're supposed to be above the common people. And the high priest was supposed to be above them because the more you are called out, the more closer to the presence of God that you would work. You know, the, 
the, the common people could come to the, tent, to the entrance of the tent of the meeting or could come to the altar in the outer court. Um, but the, uh, the priest offered sacrifices and kept the bread in the holy place. So because they were closer to the presence of God, they had to be more holy. And then you had the high priest who got the closest to the presence of God on the Day of Atonement, and he had to be extra holy. So the closer you got to God, the more holy you had to be. The less holy you were, the farther away from God, and you could not approach Him. So you have this levels of approaching God and what is acceptable and what is not. You know, to most people, that would be bad news. <laughs> but again, in Jesus, for us as Christians... God opened the way through Jesus Christ into the holiest and he tore the veil so that through Christ and his holiness, his righteousness, we have been made the righteousness of God and we are all, even with our sin, even with our unholiness, because no Israelite can live up to all of this. You know, that's why, that's why Hebrews says, if perfection could come by the Levitical law, there would be no reason for another covenant. So we've been made holy, so therefore we all have access into the very presence of God anytime and anywhere to stand before Him, to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive help. Why? Because it's not dependent upon our own righteousness, but yet our righteousness is found in the righteousness of Jesus. Paul's prayer and his cry in Philippians is that I may not be found standing in my own righteousness, but in the righteousness of of Christ. And that's what makes the gospel good news. That's what makes, you know, putting, putting these things on people. The law shows us that we are all condemned, that we are all unworthy, that none of us can live up to it. So what does he do? He sanctifies us by the offering of Christ. He tears the veil. He opens up the way into the holiness so that we can all have fellowship with God as, as priests before him. Jesus Christ being our chief high priest. That's the good news of the gospel. So there, there's no more levels of this. There's the righteousness of God and the Holy Spirit in us working out the righteousness and the spirit of the law as he transforms us into the image of Christ. As we first become holy and become righteous, and then we begin to live righteously out of our identity. But here it was, you have to become righteous in order to be righteous. In the new covenant, it's you've become righteous. Now you can live righteously as the Holy Spirit empowers you and lives on the inside of you. And, and that's the good news of the grace of God. So I'm sorry, I can't go through all the old covenant without putting the new covenant in there at the end to show us how good that we have it. Because you can see how if we don't, I'm here, here I go, here I go. We can see that, that if we don't keep that in perspective, that you can, I can easily take Leviticus and preach how holy we must be if we want to approach God. If we want to be acceptable by God, we have to do this and not do that and don't be unclean and clean and this and that. We can put all these rules and restrictions on people to put the veil back up before the presence of God. 
So that's why, and many well-meaning preachers and teachers have done that, and they've taken these passages from Leviticus and said, whoa, well, if you want to approach God, you have to get up to these standards or, or be this holy and, you know, without bringing in the good news of Christ. So never lose focus on the good news of the gospel when you're down here in Leviticus by thinking, man, you know, if they had to be this level of holy, I don't know if I'm good enough to approach God, or I don't know if I've been holy enough, or, or I, I may be mixing the things with the world and this, and we can start to condemn ourselves and feel unworthy and feel that we're not good enough. So it's easy when we're reading that to take these things and apply them directly to us, but we always filter everything from, from Malachi back to Genesis. We filter that through the work that Jesus has done for us. Never taking our view. So when we're, so when we're reading Leviticus, we're reading it through the lens of Jesus and the new covenant. Can it still speak to us? Yes. Can, can, can we still see Jesus in this? Yes, we can. But do we take what's in here and, and put it as a heavy burden and put it as a law on ourselves that puts a border of separation between us and God? No, we don't do that because Jesus came to take that away. That now we can do what we've talked about today. We can worship God. We can pray with Him anytime. We don't have to go through another mediator. And even in our sinfulness and even in our flesh, we can still watch God do amazing things if we just love him and put our trust and faith in him. That's what he's looking for. That's what God's looking for. So there's my soapbox. There's my sermon uh, to in Leviticus. I don't know. It's just like an itch I got to scratch whenever I'm here in Leviticus and, and in the Old Testament because it always points to Christ.